Today, my guest is Professor Jeffrey Jones. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Jeffrey as a person. Professor Jones is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Jones is an AIB fellow. He has been the president of the Business History Conference of the US, the European Business History Association, and the Association of Business History in Great Britain. He is the co-editor of the journal Business History Review, and his current research and teaching focuses on the history of globalization, multinational enterprise, emerging markets, and green business. He co-directs the Creative Emerging Markets, Creating Emerging Markets Oral History Project at the HPS, which explores business leadership in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East over the recent decades. Thank you, Jeffrey, for joining us. Thank you for asking me. First question about your background. What did you want to become when you were a child? Uh, I wanted to become a bus driver. Bus driver. I wanted to become a bus driver, yeah. And there's um, a number of possible explanations for that. One is that my mother worked in a bus company when she was pregnant. She was in the um, scheduling timetable office. Hmm. And, um, and where did you grow up? It turns out, sorry? Where did you grow up? It's in Birmingham, in uh, England. Um, it turns out that the first word I said as a baby was bus. <laughs> I, I stood up and pointed at a bus. Uh, and ever since then, I've had this thing about um, Buses. I've extended my horizon to trains, airplanes, but uh, I like. Um, I'm very interested in in public transit. I'm very interested in scheduling. So I think I was like conditioned from when I was in the womb to have this to have this hobby. Anyway, I couldn't make the grade. I did apply for a job to be uh, a bus um, conductor because at that time they still had people giving out tickets. Um, but I couldn't get the job, um, so I went to um, I went to uh, university. <laughs> so that's the sad story. Yeah, it is their loss actually. But what was the qualification to, to be a conductor? Uh, actually, I think you had to have done a, like training on the job. Um, so when I, when I went. I said no, I haven't had any experience, but I'm dead keen, and they just didn't want to didn't want to train me. So, yeah, otherwise my life would have been uh, different. Yeah, it would. I mean, I, I would understand it if you were a, if you wanted to be a pilot, um, um, work for the government. There's a height uh, requirement or eyesight requirement. I I would understand those things, but for yeah. a bus conductor. Um, <laughs> anyway, today, uh, I'm proud to say I believe I'm the only member of the Harvard Business School faculty who comes to work every day on a bus. Everybody else arrives in a BMW or, or <laughs> but I come, I come to work on a, on a bus. Interesting. Anyway. Um, about uh, choosing uh, academia, how did you choose academia? 
people having failed to get a job in the bus industry, um, I went to college and then I was you know, pretty good at what I, what I was doing. So I got, I got pretty good grades in, in college. And then when I graduated, um, I decided to do a PhD. Uh, it just seemed the comfortable thing to do. And I got, in the good old days, I got a full government scholarship, so it didn't cost me any money. I liked what I was doing. So I roared on. After I finished my PhD, um, there was another sad story. I thought I'd leave academia and I applied to the World Bank. Um, but they, they wouldn't have me. And so, again, I, thought I had to stay in academia. So I, I, uh, I was, uh, became a fellow in the Cambridge College and then moved on to London School of, uh, of Economics. Um, you know, and eventually you get so old, you can't do anything. You can't do anything <laughs> else. So then I was just on this, on this track. You know. uh, about your choice uh, for being a historian, business historian, uh, looking at uh, history, how did that come about? I think it's at high school and in, as an undergraduate student, I was always interested in history. I was always interested in economics. Those are the two disciplines I, I really like. So when I did a history first degree, I chose all the economic history courses uh, that you can find, including um, two courses taught by a business historian called Clive Shabilcock, actually, who was kind of a very inspirational teacher. So as often happens, you know, I, I talked with him and to others about good, about good topics. And I eventually uh, came up with studying the British government and oil companies in the early 20th century. That could have gone in several directions. It could have gone into political history, policy history. But the thing I found really interesting was actually looking at the companies. Um, and I discovered the thrill of getting into um, company archives when nobody else could get into them, and the thrill of finding, you know, information no one had seen, which um, isn't in the public domain. So I became a really, um, that, that was the area of research I found most, most exciting. And it's a mixture of, instead of like most historians go to well-organized archives and things, you know, I've been into sort of terrible places where companies have kept their archives, I've had all measure of, uh, of excuses or endeavors to block me from studying uh, studying corporate archives. And so I think it's a mixture of like historical research and detective work and you get the kind of the thrill of the chase, uh, uh, which is just very, uh, just very exciting, I think, and much better than poring over documents, which you know, hundreds of people see um, every day. So the, PhD and then the first book became not a policy book really, 
uh, it had a lot more about the companies and about their international expansion. I looked at British companies in Iran, the Middle East, um, Russia, um, without at that time using any ID theory. I was just looking at them mm -hmm. empirically. But in fact, what I was doing already was a form of a form of IB, actually. So that's that's it. I went through my PhD into looking at the history of business, and then from from then on, yeah. Thank you. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Well, I think there's not a lot interesting about me. Uh, to build on my first comments, um, I hate um, automobiles. Uh, I haven't driven a car for 30 years. Um, and I strongly dislike getting into, uh, strongly dislike getting into cars as well. So, and I don't put that on my CV, but nobody really, nobody really cares. Anyway, that's one thing, <laughs> just not on my CV. If you stop being an academic, what would you do? Uh, if I could reset my life again, uh, I'd be, uh, I'd like to be a medical doctor. Hmm. Uh, regrets, have you got any regrets? Hmm? Regrets, uh, what is one thing you wish you had, you had done or you would have done, but you didn't? Well, probably be a medical doctor. That's it? Yeah, because as I, you know, as I've seen life, I think I've seen like so much suffering and so many bad things in the world. And I feel that as an educator, all I can do at the very best is to try and influence the next generation to do something good for this world. And that's, a, you know, it's a kind of very indirect way of doing any good. So I think, a, think about a doctor Every day, they're doing something to help other people. And I think in retrospect, um, I'd like to have been that kind of person. But, Thank you. What are you most passionate about? Sorry, I missed that. Passion. Uh, do you have a, there's something that you're passionate about? Oh, my work. Okay. If I didn't... Uh, I wasn't passionate about it, I wouldn't, you know, I'd do something else. I get excited about every new book, every new new article, uh, every new new idea still. So yeah, I think it's my my work is what I'm most passionate about. So uh, let's talk about work. Let's talk about research. How do you explain your research and the importance of your uh, research to laymen, people who don't read your work regularly? Um, I think I'd say my, my job is to bring the threat to the past and make it relevant to the present day so we don't repeat our errors of the past and can have a better future. That's really what I 
that's what I do. I see, um, I'm, in many ways, I'm very future oriented. So I'm always thinking about how the past can help us have better futures. And that's what I, that's what I teach. Uh, that's, you know, that's a lot, the point of a lot of my research too. Mm. About uh, the future of the fields. Um, I want to ask you, for, for instance, uh, what are some of the things that we have omitted or not emphasized enough, things that we should have done more of in IB research? Well, you know, I mean, I think I've said this in various speeches. We, uh, we live at a, an extremely bad time in human history. We live at a moment of environmental uh, collapse. We live in a moment of huge inequalities, whether income, gender, ethnic. Um, and these and other grand challenges, um, multinationals are at the center of many of the problems. They also have the potential to be at the center of the solutions. But if you look at IB literature as a whole, you know, the journals are not full of articles about multinationals and the environment, multinationals and inequality. Um, some articles, yes, but not really. So I think international business should be, should be speaking a lot more to the challenges which society faces now. And I think that's the way to make it fully you know, purposeful and relevant. I think academic disciplines as a whole should be relevant relevant to the moment, or else it's hard to justify their existence. Sure. Now, about uh, patients come to you and say, oh, Professor Jones, could you give me some ideas that I want to feel passionate about? <laughs> so what are the questions that will guide uh, their research on environmental issues, inequality issues, um, something that they are going to be making an impact in the in society. What are some of the questions that, that you can think of that should be studied in the next five to 10 years? I mean, one question, one very important question is um, tax avoidance. By multinationals. Um, and what we know now is that large multinationals route an enormous amount of their business through um, through um, Cayman Islands, BDI, whatever else, based. Um, and we know from uh, a recent paper that, like, as a result, for example, like 40% of all FDI is planned from FDI. Uh, it's just financial um, gains 
time. And that has huge consequences. That's a huge tax loss um, for, many, for many people, for many countries, many poor countries. You look at the emerging markets, some countries lose 50 more percent of their corporate tax revenue through companies playing games like this. It's also created a kind of a shadow world where illegal money is passing through these centers. So that's right at the center of many of the inequalities and many of the bad practices of business now. And it's become kind of legitimized. I think my, um, my colleagues in the finance department at Harvard Business School will, will be teaching the MBA students how to minimize their tax returns uh, if, they're, if they're in a company by routing them through various um, financial centers and other, other game plans. And it's so irresponsible. And that's hardly found, hardly discussed in the ID literature. And yet multinationals right at the center, right at the center of that. Um, so I think that should be a very important area uh, for people to work on the data is there that it's possible to get the data. You have to ask the questions and, and do some and do some digging. But the environment, um, I mean, again, there is work uh, on multinationals and their environmental practices, not nearly enough. And again, we have some really, you know, difficult areas. For example, we have massive greenwashing by uh, the biggest multinationals, uh, systematic greenwashing. That should be looked at a lot more. We need to get beyond you know, using their greenwashed annual reports and other sources, dig down, dig deep. That's very, very, uh, that's very, very important um, too. So I think all of these grand challenges uh, need to be addressed uh, with the role of the firms and of the corporation and the process of decision-making. And talking about decision-making, uh, you know, international business is a subject that's got rid of human beings. Um, and yet human beings are the ones taking these decisions about greenwashing and about tax avoidance. So I think there's a research agenda too, putting you know, the personalities of putting individuals, the chief executives and the boards back onto the agenda. We know from other echelon theory how important they are in shaping practices and policies. And I think that would be also a wonderful, uh, uh, a wonderful way to, to go. Thank you. I want to ask you something a bit different uh, about what you think on, on the Chinese investments or Indian investments in Africa, in the Middle East, uh, whether they are uh, part of a new colonization effort or is it a new old Silk Road being revived? What do you think about the, the Belt and the Road initiatives? 
I don't know if the term new colonization, it's, it's quite a subjective um, term. I mean, what we are seeing, of course, is the emergence or the competition of different forms of capitalism. And in China or in the Gulf for that matter, we have um, a form of capitalism in which state policy is extremely is extremely important part of the of the story in the way that it's not, say, in the United States. So I think the Belt and Road is, you know, there are clear government objectives and there are clear corporate objectives. Um, I don't necessarily see it as colonialism. I do see it as part of the process we are seeing of China rewriting the rules of the game away from rules that were established when Western powers were, were dominant. And this is happening you know, across the board in multiple places in technologies uh, and other, other things. It's a kind of, you know, taking on my historian's hat, we are going back to the world of like the 17th and 18th century, right, where China and India were you know, the major manufacturing countries in the world, and they were major centers of technology. So I think it's just part of this reset, reset Thank process. You. Thank you. China's had a, I mean, China had a very bad time over the last 200 years. Things like the opium wars were outrageous. Um, they're largely forgotten about in the West, yet they're not forgotten about in, in China, I think. And I think there's this, this resetting of the world order is understandable. Even if some forms it takes are not perhaps optimal. Thank you. About the culture of IB scholarship, how it evolved um, from what it was early on and what it is now, what can you say about that? I think it's, uh, yeah, my, my personal take is when IB scholarship got going, it was um, very exciting, big question type scholarship, and whether it's Dunning, you know, whether it's Vernon correctly collecting this giant database, uh, whether it's Buckley and Casson asking, you know, why do multinationals exist? Why not use the market? You have these really big questions, right? And what's, what's happened over time uh, is a narrowing of ambition. Um, more and more sort of incremental type of, of work and the kind of really big questions are not asked. And they're not asked in particular, I think, by younger scholars, I think it's, um, and there's a reason for that, of course, and the, and the reason for that is because the academic profession works to stop people asking big questions. Um, 
it's in like a, the refereeing process, the promotions process, all of that rewards incremental work. Uh, it rewards people who get the methodology right rather than the people who ask transformational questions. So IB is not alone in that. Like you can look across the management disciplines, I think, and find the same phenomenon. So I think this is, um, and in some ways IB has done better, I think, than some other areas of, of management. So I see this like narrowing of ambitions. Um, and I would like to see a, you know, bolder admission. So people have got to step up. People of a certain age, uh, like me, have to step up and encourage uh, young people who are going to have the best ideas to have to encourage them and protect them if they come forward with bold and transformational ideas, I think. And we do that as editors, we do that on promotion committees. Uh, we can do other things. We should reward the unconventional, the people who think, think out of the box a lot more. Thank you. About advice and mentoring, uh, you mentioned about uh, your mentor in, in business history. Um, who had the most, uh, who had the most influence on your uh, intellectual development over the years? Um, well, I mean, top of the list is Mira Wilkins, also an AIB fellow. Mira Wilkins was the one who um, pioneered looking historically at multinationals. So she was the first business historian I read. Uh, I contacted her already um, when I was writing my first book. Uh, and in those days, we had to write letters to one another or have phone calls or something, right? And so letters flew across the Atlantic. Um, so she's always been known to continues to be an inspiration for me. So she is the, she is the doyen. And uh, her early books, her later books, but her early books are amazing and transformational, I think, in 1970-74 books. Uh, so she, she is always a role model for me in terms of, you know, deep engagement with the materials, thinking about what it means, writing general, generalizations. So top of the list uh, is Mira. I'd say secondly, Mark Casson. Uh, after, uh, uh, yeah, I spent the, my 1990s at Reading, Reading University, and Mark was very influential in uh, helping me to think uh, more conceptually. We both had a, we both had a strong view that um, history and theory needed to be uh, interact with one another, and both sides would benefit um, enormously from from that. And I think the decade I spent in um, Reading in the economics department in Reading was highly impactful in how I frame questions and think about questions and the language that I, that I use. 
about uh, giving advice to young scholars, uh, young PhD students or uh, junior faculty. What are some of the things that you would say that they should do and they should not do? I think they should, they should have um, courage. It's, it's um, very easy to do something very incremental. Very easy to get another data set and don't run some regressions on it, but it's not going to change the world. Um, so I think courage and I, you know, people, examples I've seen of that courage have actually been rewarded as well. And in a time of very competitive job market, all of that, I think, you know, it even gives you a competitive advantage if you've done something really different. So I think that's, I think that's really, really, really um, important. I always think um, learning to work with other people and appreciate other people is a, is a tremendous skill. Um, that requires uh, humility, um, some degree of um, selflessness as well, but the rewards are, the rewards are just enormous. Uh, I've benefited so much um, working with other people of all types, whether they are senior professors or uh, MBA students and everything in, in between. I just learned so much. You just have to, you know, you just have to you know, stop yourself thinking you're the one who knows everything and just listen to what people are saying. And uh, so I think though, I think collaboration is uh, tremendously, tremendously important and bold. Thank you. Uh, for the sake of time, last question. What is one question that I should have asked you but haven't? Uh, well, you could you could ask me about uh, work-life balance. There you go. Uh, and I would only say on that that I like in, like in many things a total failure. <laughs> I've worked. Um, I've worked. Uh, too hard and not have enough balance and it's something uh, if you're starting out in a career I think you really have to you know pay attention pay attention to that or at least realize what you're doing to yourself you may decide you want an unbalanced life but it's it's a trap that people particularly people who do quite well regularly fall into and then you know they can wake up unhappy or unfulfilled or something so it's definitely worth taking advice standing back thinking about what you want out of life what makes what you really want out of life before it's too late thank you so much for your time i learned a lot this was very interesting uh, thank you thank you for your time Thank you for asking me.